Um, we're going to start in Acts 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. And could, would one of you mind reading, the passage is right here in the bulletin, would one of you mind reading that uh, for us? Kick us off. We're going to run into a name there. It's Theophilus. 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 <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. Mm-hmm. So, a um, couple of things, I, I don't know, if, a couple of stats I think are important to know. There are, there are over 7 billion people alive on earth today, right? And one out of three of those people claim to be Christian. Okay, one out of three people in the world claim to be Christian. Christianity is the largest, most diverse, uh, most widespread people group that has ever existed in this world. Despite what we might observe here in America and our little evangelical bubble, the global Christian community is growing. Okay, over the last 100 years, and remember Christianity has been around for almost 2,000, over the last 100, uh, the, the global Jesus community has grown from 600 million people in 1910 to now over 2.3 billion people. All right, it, Christianity is exploding in places like Asia and Africa, um, where we, we just see massive growth happening in countries like Iran, Afghanistan, India, Tanzania, Tanzania. Uganda and Ethiopia. More people join the Christian community every single day than any other community or any other religion in the world. Hey, Christianity is growing. It's growing massively. So how did something so big, so diverse, so multi-ethnic, so quickly growing, how did it all begin? Well, it began as we see in Acts 1-8 here with uh, 1 verses 1 through 8 with a small group of poor ancient Jewish rejects sitting in a house in Jerusalem. Okay, it began here. The, the, the book of, of the Bible referred to as Acts, as we're going to spend you know, a number of months in, um, it gives us the origin story of this Jesus movement. Acts was written by a man named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and, and uh, it tells us of the story of the earliest days of this global Jesus community that we call Christianity. It begins with Jesus, after his death and resurrection, spending 40 days with his followers. And at the time, it was about 120 uh, men and women. During these, those 40 days, he, uh, he spent that, that, those days teaching them about the kingdom of God, 
all about the kingdom and I'm sure answering all their questions about the resurrection and, and whatever was going to happen next. And, and we get to the end of these 40 days and Jesus' followers are ready. They, they say in verse 6, uh, is this the time? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, when, when's this happening? Like we're ready to go. And, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I've always heard this question and thought it was an indication that they just completely were oblivious to what Jesus was actually doing. Like they still didn't get it. Um, you know, asking when Jesus would restore the kingdom of Israel, it sounds kind of like that nationalistic uh, I- ideology that, that Jesus would often call out in the Jewish leaders. Jesus was constantly pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God was not just for Israel, but for all people, all nationalities, uh, everywhere. But Israel had, over the years, had come to this, and we see this in, in the Gospels, had come to this, such a self-serving uh, view that the world existed and everything God created existed for Israel. But Jesus often reminded them, he's like, that, that's not how it was, uh, that's not how it has ever been. All the way back in the days of Abraham, the father of Israel, uh, the people of God were called, uh, not the world wasn't created for the people of God, but the people of God were called to be a blessing to the world. Right? So, so um, in other words, uh, you know, when we talk about the people of God or, or Israel, or, or in this case, the church, okay, the church, the, the world doesn't exist for the church. Okay? The church exists for the world. And in the same way, the kingdom of God doesn't exist for the people of God. The people of God exist to serve and to spread the kingdom of God. And this is really important, as we'll see here in this passage and all throughout Acts. It's something that the early Christians, they, they really got. They really realized. And it's this one thing, that following Jesus is not something that you choose to do. It's not some self-serving, benefiting, or self-benefiting add-on to your life. It is a calling that requires you to willingly sacrifice everything for God and for others. Following Jesus, as we see here in Acts 1.8, means joining him in his mission. So when I read this question that the disciples ask, and, and I think, you know, how could they still not get it? Um, you know, they just took Jesus' 40-day master class on the kingdom of God, and they're, they're still oblivious. They still, like, think, hey, it's all about Israel. But, you know, I did some reading this week. It turns out um, that... You know, despite what I've, I've heard over the years, a lot of biblical scholars actually believe they did have a good understanding of, of the kingdom and what Jesus was doing. And, and the reason they asked the question this way is because this is exactly how Jesus talked about uh, the kingdom. This is exactly how we see the Old Testament prophets talk about the kingdom and how we see the, the church talked about in Hebrews and, and Revelation. Uh, when he, they say Israel, they mean the people of God. Okay, when we looked at Revelation and, and we see John writing about the church, he calls it the New Jerusalem. Okay, so, so they were using the terminology that Jesus, is, Jesus used, and they, they really did get it. And we'll see that their understanding of this and the kingdom uh, just flowed out of them and everything they do, do all throughout Acts. Uh, though they make a lot of mistakes at times. So, so when we say Israel, when they say, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, they mean the new covenant people. Okay, the people that have entered into God's family through Jesus, the church. Uh, so they're, they're, at, they're like, when's this going to happen? We're ready. And, and Jesus responds in verse 7, that's not for you to know. Okay, the timing is not for you to know. And, and they must be thinking like, what? This seems really important. Really important for us to know when, when this is going to happen. But Jesus says, no, you know, the timing of all that is God's concern. Don't you worry yourself about when this is going to happen. Instead, concern yourself with this. Be my witnesses. 
Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They want to know when. Jesus tells them how. They want, to, they want the timeline of the kingdom. They want to know when it's all going to happen and, and, and to be ready for it. Jesus gives them their role in the kingdom. He gives them the means through which the kingdom would spread and would come. Jesus gives them a mission. Be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and all over the world. This would be like saying, be my witnesses here in Knoxville and in East and Middle Tennessee and then all across the world. In other words, be spreaders of the kingdom. Continue my ministry of reconciliation to all people everywhere. Be my witnesses. That's what Jesus is telling his followers to do. So a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about uh, uh, the garden, right? The re- and we talked about the resurrected world. And, and we said at the end, right, our, our purpose in life is to be spreaders of the garden, right? Spreaders of the Garden of Eden, that place where heaven and earth overlap where they intersect and this is exactly what jesus is calling his followers to do in acts 1 8 remember heaven and earth is no longer confined to the temple or the tabernacle those holy places heaven and earth uh it it intersects in the person of jesus and in the people and the communities that represent him in the world so being his witnesses everywhere uh inviting others into relationship with jesus means to be a spreader of the garden to be a spreader of the, uh, that, that place, the, the kingdom of God, where heaven and earth intersect. So what, what does this look like? Well, this, that's what the book of Acts is all about. It shows us what it looks like for people to, to really, really live out this calling, um, to really commit their lives to being a witness of Jesus. It gives us a look into the lives of the people who walked with Jesus and then continued his ministry after he left. It gives us a look at the first communities Okay, the first churches that formed in response to Jesus' life and teaching. So it would do us uh, quite a bit of good, I think, to study these people, to study these communities, to really get to know them and to understand uh, what they looked like and what they did and, and how they gathered. And then to ask, what does this look like for us today? What does it look uh, like for, for us here in Knoxville, in this strange Bible Belt city where you know, you have people that, that, you know, most people here have grown up in the church and, and most of them have left and want nothing to do it. What does it look like? How do we continue this mission that started all the way back with this small group of Jews gathered uh, around Jesus? Well, we're going to learn a lot of truths throughout the, our time in Acts, but today we'll see in this passage that all this, right, the communities and the lives of the followers of Jesus were founded on this one mission to be his witnesses, to be his representatives, to, to tell and to demonstrate the whole world to the whole world who Jesus is. We're going to spend the next handful of months as we journey through Acts uh, in these gatherings in our communities answering that question, what does it look like to be Jesus' witnesses all throughout the world? What does it look like to have communities that are founded on this mission? Uh, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in a couple weeks. David's going to walk us through Acts 2, 1 through 13, Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and fills every person uh, as part of this early Jesus community, and and amazing things happen as a result. We're going to talk about uh, the lives of those who follow Jesus and and how they closely resemble the lives of Jesus, Um, how our story should reflect his story. We're going to talk about generosity and compassion, uh, how to engage in, in the culture and politics 
diversity, spiritual gift, all this stuff all over the book of Acts that are so important for us today as we follow Jesus. We're going to get to talk about all that. So um, I'm real excited about our, uh, you know, being able to walk through this together. But today we're going to focus in on this mission, right? To be a witness. And, and I want to really focus in on this singular word, witness, and what that means. If we're going to be that, we got to know what that means. So um, this is the single mission that Jesus left his followers with. Um, it, it's, it's really important for us to understand. So, so the Greek word behind witness, okay, I, I'm not sure if, if you all have heard this before. It's, it's uh, martyreo, martyreo, right? Uh, and this is where we get our English word martyr, right? Martyr. So if you've heard the word martyr, okay, we, we take that word from this, this term behind uh, the word witness in the Bible, martyreo, okay? And it refers to, at least the word martyr in English, refers to a person who is killed for their religious or political beliefs and practices. Okay, that's what martyr means. And we think about how these words work together. It's easy for us to, to learn about this connection and think, well, you know, Jesus must be asking us to, to go get martyred or at least to be severely persecuted for following him. And if we think that, there's two ways we could respond. We could either go out looking for any tiny amount of persecution, okay, Christian movies don't get played in theaters or, or Christian music, you know, people don't seem to like that too much. And we think, oh, it's persecution. So we're looking for that because we think we need that. Or we say, well, I guess this really doesn't just doesn't apply to me because we live in America and, and we're not really persecuted all that much. We certainly aren't going to be killed for our faith. So it must just apply to the people that Jesus is speaking to at the moment. The problem with this thinking is Jesus didn't say, go get martyred for following me. Yeah, he didn't say, go be a martyr. He said, be my witness. Martyreo in Greek means witness, to be a witness, not to be martyred. Okay, the reason that we have this English word martyr, meaning someone who is killed for their faith, is because a whole lot of these early Christians were killed for following Jesus. In Acts 7, we'll read of the first man who died uh, for this Jesus mission. Um, his name was Stephen. Okay, a group of Jewish men. Uh, led by a guy named Paul, who we'll talk a lot about uh, in this series. Um, they stoned Stephen to death for talking about Jesus in, in the public square. So we take this word, this Greek word martyreo, and we give it this new meaning in English to reflect the reality that many of these early witnesses of Jesus were in fact killed for their witness. And what this tells us, uh, what tells me is that the mission of Jesus that he gives us to be his witnesses that mission doesn't mean you'll be martyred. I, I really hope and pray none of us will ever be martyred. I don't think we ever will unless we go somewhere else or things really take a, take a turn in our country. Um, and it doesn't even mean that you'll really face severe persecution. But what it does tell us is that no matter how hard things get, okay, no matter what sort of suffering you face, no matter what you have to give up or what you have to sacrifice, the calling on your life, the mission that Jesus has given you, has not and will never change. We are called to be his witnesses every moment, every day, whether we feel like it or not, okay, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether people love you for it or hate you for it. We are called to be his witnesses. Uh, Willie Jennings is a professor of theology and African studies at Yale Divinity School, and he says there are two elements to being a witness that we see he, he kind of takes everything in Acts and he synthesizes it down to two elements of being a witness. He says, one, a master storyteller. A master storyteller. And two, an irrefutable 
presence, an undeniable presence. So one, being a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that we will both live out and retell Jesus' story. Okay, and we can't do that if we don't know it. Can't do that if we don't know it. How well do we know Jesus' teachings? How, how well do we know his parables? How well do we know of the miracles and the interactions, the conversations that he has with people? How well do we know about his kingdom, the thing he talked about most in his life? If we are going to be master storytellers of Jesus, we need to know the story. We need to know his story. We need to read and reread the Gospels. We need to retell the story to one another and, and live it out together in our communities. Being a witness means you are a master storyteller of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you, you, if you are a witness of Jesus, if you really want to be a witness of Jesus, we need to know Jesus better than we know anyone else in this world. Better than we know anyone else. We need to know Jesus. And I don't know about you. I cannot say that for myself. I cannot say that's true for myself. Um, and, and maybe you can. But if not, we need to get to know Jesus better than we know anyone else in this world to be a, a, a master storyteller of his life and death and resurrection. So being a witness also means that we are the irrefutable presence, right? Irrefutable presence. So master storyteller and irrefutable presence of Jesus. The undeniable presence of Jesus. When we live out this mission, okay, the people who spend time around us shouldn't just hear about Jesus. They should experience him. They should feel him. And they cannot just deny when they, when they spend time with us that something is different about these Jesus freaks. Something is different about these people who say they follow Jesus. And they might not be, even be able to put it into words, but they know something is different. That's the irrefutable presence that we are called to be. We demonstrate Jesus' presence by our love, radical love and our compassion, by our authenticity and honesty, by our peace and patience, even in really hard times. We certainly demonstrate it by our unconditional forgiveness and overwhelming grace for all people. So it's interesting to me that, that the people who couldn't get enough of Jesus, the people who followed him everywhere, were the very same people who wouldn't uh, step foot in the temple. Okay, who wouldn't even be welcomed into temple. What was it about uh, Jesus that attracted unholy people to him like a magnet? What was it? And why don't we see the same happening in our churches, in our communities today? Why is it that... that I, I, you know, I have, con I just had a conversation with a guy yesterday that said, you know, he, oh, he can't, he can't step foot in the church. He's done too much, too many bad things. And, and he wouldn't be welcome there or, or whatever. Or he, you know, he wouldn't feel welcome there. Why is it? Why is it that a person like that would be so drawn to Jesus, but not drawn to our churches and to our communities that are supposed to reflect Jesus? Being a witness means that we are the undeniable presence of the person of Jesus to those around us. We need to figure out what, what is it? What is it about Jesus that attracts people? And how do we embody that in our lives? So every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus are called to be his witnesses, telling his story, embodying his presence every day of our lives. There's no escaping this calling. It's not optional. 
I'm speaking to the choir here, all right? It's not for the really, really good Christians, okay? Uh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be his witness. There's no other option. This is how it started with this mission, to be his witnesses to the world. So I want to conclude by just going back to, to what we spoke about at the beginning, that the church is this, this massive, diverse, multi-ethnic, global community. It's growing rapidly all around the world. And, and that's something we can celebrate, right? It's something we don't think a lot about, okay? I think, but, but, but it also needs to be said, uh, and the reason we don't think a lot about it and, and, and celebrate it is, is we don't see that happening here in America. We don't see a rapid growth in the church in America. In fact, uh, Christians as a percentage of the population in this country is decreasing. It's decreasing. And, and honestly, it's causing a lot of panic among the Christian community. A lot of panic and, and there's a lot of fear that Christians were losing power and influence in, in American culture. And, and we're not, you know, we don't, we don't have this presence that we once used to have. Um, we often cloak this, uh, you know, when you hear people talking a lot about protecting religious liberties, freedom of religion. That's, that's this fear of like we're losing, losing power and influence in the culture. And so I want to leave us with just three reflections on the state of the church in America and how it relates to this passage and specifically our calling to be his witnesses here. Okay, we, want, we, we got to talk about one, why is this happening? Okay, why, why, is, why is the church shrinking in America where you have other countries and, and it's just exploding and, and globally it's, it's growing? Why is it happening? Number two, the decline of the church all right, is not something that we should fear. Okay, but actually, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to step further into, the, uh, into our mission to be his witnesses. And number three, why uh, this fight for cultural significance or power, okay, what, what we often call a fight for religious liberty, this fight is actually hurting our collective witness of the church in America. And I know that's not something that we really are doing here, but this is what people are hearing from the church. We're fighting for this power, fighting for this cultural influence, and it's hurting. It's hurting our witness. So we need to understand that. So number one, why is this happening first? Why, why is in America, uh, this Christian nation, we got God on our money and all this stuff. Why is the church declining? Uh, I read this quote by E. Stanley Jones. He was a missionary in India in the early 1900s, and he actually became a real good friend of, of Mohandas Gandhi. Okay, And he said this, Stanley Jones said, we inoculate the world with a mild form of Christianity so that it will be immune to the real thing. We inoculate the world with a mild form of Christianity so that it will be immune to the real thing. And he says the aim of such inoculation is security, but not security in Christ, security from Christ. Security from having to rely on him and his kingdom to give us meaning and significance in our lives. America has largely been inoculated to real faith in Jesus. We have been inoculated by this passive and personal Christianity, a Christianity that consists of showing up on Sunday, getting our Jesus fix, and then going about our lives, our, our weeks, however we want. A Christianity that exists primarily, if not exclusively, for our own benefit and comfort and, and to, to feel good about ourselves rather than the benefit of others. 
a Christianity that is all about punching our tickets to the afterlife rather than taking an active part in God's restoration of the world. A Christianity that is more concerned with cultural relevance, political power, and self-preservation rather than love, peace, justice, care for the poor and the oppressed. This is a Christianity that, as Stanley Jones says, promises security, but not security in Jesus, security from actually having to depend on Jesus. Security from having to find our purpose and our significance in him and his kingdom. And we know if you have Christianity without Jesus, without dependence on Jesus, well, it doesn't take long for people to realize they don't really need Christianity at all. And that's what's happening in our country. People are realizing, we don't need this. I don't need this to find community. I don't need this to, to, uh, to be a good person. I don't need to be, do this to, to serve my community. All these things that people think, you know, we've talked about in Christianity, people find that elsewhere. Because we've lost the fact that, that Christianity is not about those things, but those things flow out of a dependence on the person of Jesus. So this is happening because we've inoculated the world collectively as the church with a mild, nominal form of Christianity. Number two, the decline of the American church is not something to fear. Okay, we don't have to fear this. We can actually see it as an opportunity. An opportunity for us to, to live out this mission as witnesses in a new and fresh way. As more people step away from Christianity, as more people leave the church and, and as the church has less and less of a voice in the politics and the and the culture of our country all right as we grow more secular right you see this happening in western cities and and you know even like you know downtown knoxville versus versus rural knoxville as as places grow more secular and and step further away from christianity we will be able to tell uh, uh, the people of the story of Jesus and demonstrate the presence of Jesus in a really fresh and unique way. Okay, as it, first there's an anger towards Christianity and a distaste for it, but eventually there's just a, you, you know, they don't even think about it. Okay, and at that point it gives us an opportunity to really present this witness in a fresh and new way. It gives us an opportunity to redefine for people what it means to be Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. And as that mild form of American Christianity or Western Christianity declines, the inoculation to real Christianity, real life with Jesus begins to wear off. And your witness to the real Jesus will be all that more powerful and all that more attractive. So the decline of the American church presents an opportunity to step further into our mission to be witnesses. Lastly, I, I just want to uh, leave with this point that, that when we fight, because right now the response to that in some evangelical circles, and uh, it's not the majority, but definitely the loudest voices, is to fight for cultural significance, to fight for political power. We saw that a lot over the last year with the pandemic. All right, this protection of religious liberty. And religious liberty is not a bad thing. It's something we can be thankful for. But when we fight for this, and it's really a fight for power and influence, what we do is we hurt the collective witness of the church. One of the most damaging things in American Christianity has been this marriage between the church, okay, particularly white evangelicals, and, and conservative politics, the Republican Party. 
Okay, what I'm not saying is that you can't be a conservative or a Republican and be a Christian, but the complete marriage between the church and the, when when people see you as a white evangelical in America, they assume Republican conservative politics and all these different things that don't reflect the church, okay, but reflect the political ideology. And did you know, okay, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, not the, but but it's important for us to understand. Before 1980, there wasn't that marriage between the church and and a political party. Before 1980, now you might have had Christians vote, vote conservative, but not in the way that they are now, with 95, 98% of white evangelicals voting conservative. And before 1980, that wasn't happening. We weren't seen as a monolithic uh, political uh, pawn. What happened um, is, uh, and, and this is really important to know, it was during Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign, a guy named Jerry Falwell Sr., you probably know, Southern Baptist pastor in Virginia, founded Liberty University, who, who we smoked yesterday, right? Didn't we beat him in baseball? Yeah. We beat him in baseball, so that's good, because uh, not, yo. So, so anyway, Reagan and, and Falwell, they got together, and, and, uh, and Falwell basically said this to him. He said, here's this li- list of issues. If you make these issues a priority in your presidency, I will go on my radio station, I will go on my TV show and I'll get all my other televangelist friends and we will tell everyone that it is the Christian duty to vote for you and to vote Republican. Okay, it was called the Moral Majority, this group of, of uh, Christian evangelical leaders in the South. And sure enough, uh, people listened to them and, and uh, a, a landslide victory, particularly among the church, voted for Reagan and he won and that was the beginning of this this marriage between the church and the Republican Party. And some of these issues, uh, obviously, you know, opposing abortion, okay, opposing gay rights. One on there was opposing equal rights for women in the workplace. Okay, not exactly a Christian uh, position, but that was part of, part of the deal. Um, you know, immigration, you know, all this stuff that were uh, legally requiring prayer and, creation and creationism in school, teaching those things in school. That's where this started, this conversation. And, you know, not... Not all those are, are Christian views, but Falwell and his crew, they were important views to them. And, and they became uh, very, very important uh, views within the, the Republican Party at that time. Now, okay, today, now 30, 30 or 40 years later, there are many people be- that believe, and, and particularly here in uh, uh, the urban core of Knoxville, if you vote Democrat or you tend to lean more liberally polit- uh, liberal in your politics, you are not welcome in the church. Yeah, you can't be Christian. This is what people think. There are Christians, obviously. We know that. But, but a lot of people have this idea. Well, I can't be a Christian. I can't be an evangelical and, and have this political ideology. And this has done a tremendous amount of damage, particularly among younger generations. Okay, we saw massive drop-offs in our generation, the generation behind us in church attendance in 2016, okay, and now in 2020. The church always does better. This is, this is what's important. The church always does better when it does not have power or influence in society. The church thrives under persecution and ostracization. Ostracization, sorry. And this is what we see throughout the book of Acts. Okay, this is what we're going to see. They, 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 they didn't have power. They didn't have influence. They were uh, essentially uh, nobodies until they grew a bunch and then they started being persecuted. 
but the church grew. This is why we see through uh, that that the church is exploding in countries like uh, or in continents of, of uh, the Asia and Africa, where Christians have no government support and often face real persecution. Just a month ago, I found this article a couple days ago. Just a month ago, in Christianity Today, they published an article titled "Proof That Political Privilege Is Harmful for Christianity." And the first line of the article is this, our analysis of 166 nations suggests that the biggest threat to Christian growth is not persecution, is not national affluence, it's not secular education or pluralism of religion, it is government support. It's government support. They showed this graph that demonstrated a a direct correlation in countries where Christians had no government support and where they often faced persecution or, or marginalization, the church was growing. And then all the way over on the other side, where in places like America and, and some other uh, nations where, where the church has a ton of support and a ton of protections and influence in politics, the church is declining. It's a direct correlation. So, you know, in Alabama, when they're fighting to keep the Ten Commandments on display in government buildings and in courtrooms, when they fight to have prayers said or creationism taught in public schools, when we boil Christianity down to, to values and beliefs and put them into laws that are enforced on everyone else, when the church aligns itself with one political party or one political ideology, it greatly harms our witness. And again, I'm not, no, one, no one here is doing that, but this is what we're up against, guys. This is what we have to distance ourselves from. Okay, and this is and whether we're, whether in word or in action, we need to demonstrate to people that Jesus is different from that, that the church is different from that, that we don't thrive when we're ruling. All right, we thrive when we're kicked down in the dirt, in the mud, and we meet people in that place. The Christian mission given to us by Jesus to be his witness is not to force our values or beliefs on people through political or cultural systems or, or any way. All right, it's not theocracy. Okay, it is to tell the story of Jesus and embody his presence and invite others to participate in that story with us. So in closing, the, 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 the church is in decline in America. There's no doubting that. And it's safe to assume that that's going to continue. There's no sign that that's going to turn around. All right, we can, you know, sure, we would love to have uh, revivals and, and, and maybe we'll have that in pockets, but more than likely the church is just going to continue. We look at East or Western European countries, Australia, they're 20 years ahead of us and that's going to continue here. As a result, it will be harder to follow Jesus in America. Throughout our lifetimes, it's just going to keep getting harder. Okay, culture is going to be uh, more, more against us. It's going to be less, uh, you know, people are going to think less highly of you for being a Christian. That's all going to happen. And it's going to be less popular and less, it's not going to be as easy to follow Jesus. But I believe that there is reason for hope. There's reason for hope. One, because the church is growing rapidly all over the world. Okay, people of every nation, every culture are coming to know Jesus. This mission here in Acts 1.8, to see Jesus' witness go to the ends of the earth, it is happening. And we should celebrate that for one. Let's not get so caught up in, in what's happening right here. But there's also hope. Uh, uh, here in America because our mission to be witnesses here in Knoxville or wherever God may take, may take us, it, it has not changed. No matter how hard it gets, okay? no matter if people hate you for it, uh, uh, call you names, maybe even persecute you someday, no matter how hard that gets, our calling 
to be his witnesses has never and will never change. And as more people grow disenchanted and dissatisfied with nominal mild Christianity, as more people grow frustrated with and give up on the church, as that happens more, the inoculation to real Christianity, to the real Jesus will wear off. And people will become more open to our witness to who Jesus is and, and all the Christians, wonderful, faithful Christians all over America who are trying to live this out. Their witness will grow stronger and more attractive and more, more poignant to those people. So every time we open Acts together, the goal is to leave with one truth about the church, one truth that we can remember and take away and, and hopefully by the end of this have a, have a whole list of truths about the church and, and we can think through how, how do these truths play out today in, in our context. And the truth today is the church has a mission. Yeah, the church has a mission to be the witnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Without this mission, we don't have the church. You don't have the church without this mission. So let's come together right now. Brian's going to lead us in some worship. And we're just going to worship Jesus together. One of the things that the Church of Acts will we'll see is they, they were constantly at the feet of Jesus, learning from Him, learning from His words, worshiping Him. They were constantly at His feet. Is something we desperately need. So let's come before Jesus and worship Him. Let's celebrate all He has done and all He is going to do. Let's ask Him to fill us with His Spirit. Fill us with His Spirit every day, giving us the boldness and the strength to live lives as His witnesses, completely sold out to His mission in this world. Let's do that now.